Uh, we've been spending a number of Sundays in Psalm 107, and it's a psalm that really means a lot to me personally, because Psalm 107 is a psalm written in praise to the God who is good even when we're not. It's a celebration of a God who is full of grace towards fallen, sinning human beings. Grace is a word that Christians use a lot. It's really the thing that separates Christianity from other religious expressions on the planet. Grace is really what defines Christianity and the gospel. And grace, uh, I find it helpful to think of grace in relationship to mercy. Mercy is a word that I think we have an easier time understanding the meaning of. Mercy is when you don't give somebody something they richly deserve. You know, if you mess with me and I decide not to clock you, that's mercy. But grace, grace is different than mercy. Grace is beyond mercy. Grace is giving something to somebody that they really do not deserve. Mercy is withholding what they should get. Grace is giving them what they have no business receiving at all. They did not earn, should never get. And our God is a God of grace. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all broken His rules. We've spurned His counsel. We've rebelled against His word. We've sinned. We've broken His law. And how is God, the righteous judge, going to respond to us Well, he is merciful, but he's more than that. He's a God of grace. Uh, Last week, we talked very passingly about the the story of the prodigal son. You might remember the story story if you've been kind of warming a pew for a while. Uh, The prodigal son, he he goes to his dad and he says, "Um, you're not dead yet, but I want my inheritance now, which is a very insulting thing to say to his dad. Basically, I want something from you. I don't want you anymore. Can you give me what would be coming to me if you did die? And then I'll just go my merry way. And Which is a very crazy, insulting thing to say to your dad. But his dad gives him his inheritance. He goes away. He spends it in wild living. Pretty soon he has no money at all. He finds himself in very desperate circumstances. And he says, you know, it would be better for me if I was even just like my dad's slave than these current circumstances. So I'll go back to him and I'll ask him to take me back on those terms. So he comes to his dad and his dad sees him from afar off and he goes to greet him and he says, dad, I blew it. I sinned against you. Can I just please be like a slave in your house? I know I'm not worthy to be your son, but can I be a slave? And his dad says, I'm taking you back as a son. Throws, slaughters the fatted calf, puts his cloak around him, brings him back in. All is restored to him as though it had never happened. Now that's grace. That's not just withholding a punishment. That's giving him something he really did not deserve. And that's my story in coming to Christ. That's your story in coming to Christ. What God does for us in the gospel is he gives us something. He gives us all of Christ's riches. You see, he didn't just take something from you on the cross. I think sometimes we think of it that way. 
On the cross when Jesus died, we think, well, he cleansed me of all my sin. That's taking away something from us. But it's not just that. You were also given the perfect righteousness of Christ. It says in the Bible that you are dressed in his righteousness. It's an amazing thing that was given to you. It's sort of like if you've ever canned any vegetables in the garden at the end of the season. In the canning process is you first have to sterilize the jar, right? You've got to remove any bacteria, impurities. That's what was done on the cross. Jesus cleansed you of all your sin. He took all of your sin onto himself. But it's a crazy thing to sterilize a jar and just put it up on the shelf as though the job is done. That's only part of the process. You then take the clean, sterilized jar and you fill it with the good stuff. And if you're a Christian today, you've not only been cleaned, you've not only had your sins taken away from you because of what Jesus did on the cross, you've also been filled. You've been given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You've been given the riches of Christ, the inheritance in Him. And then you seal that jar, you seal it in, and you've been sealed by the Spirit against the promised day when Jesus returns and you enter into your reward. Guys, that's the gospel. It's a celebration of grace. Now, in Psalm 107, what we see, this is just a celebration. It is a song in praise to the God who has not dealt with us according to our sins. That he's not a God who gives us what we so richly deserve. And even more than that, he gives us amazing things. So Psalm 107 is this incredibly vivid celebration of that God. Now in this psalm, we have these four stanzas right in the middle of the psalm. And each one is a different depiction of sin and its effect on us. So in verses 4 through 9, the psalmist depicts sin as a straying, a missing the mark, a wandering off from God into a place where you're lost and homeless. That's the depiction. And in that psalm, in that stanza, we saw that the person is looking for a city to dwell in, a home for their soul, but they're lost in this desert waste. They can't find their way there. They cry out to the Lord in their distress, and he comes and guides them by a straight way out to a city to dwell in. And then in the next one, the one that we studied last week, it, was, it depicted sin as enslavement, bondage, being thrown in jail. The one we're going to study next after this morning is going to be a, being in a storm on the open sea. And this morning, what we want to talk about is sin as a disease. But here's something I think that's worth noting. Each of these four depictions of sin are really different from one another. How different is it being alone in a vast, uncharted desert from being in a small, confined cell? How different is it to struggle with a disease within yourself as opposed to a storm outside of yourself? The psalmist really goes to great poetic lengths, really, to depict sin in these four very different ways, a desert a prison cell, a disease, a storm. And really, my guess is that if we were very honest with one another and we circled the chairs here this morning rather than giving a sermon, in fact, let's just do that. (laughs) Boy, that's a great segue, right? My guess is that we would, our stories about sin and its effect on us this morning would be different. 
Some of you guys feel lost today. Your, your sin has taken you way off course, and you are, can't seem to find a way back home. Some of you this morning feel just imprisoned, enslaved, like it's, there's a shackles on you, and you can't seem to break free from these horrific things you keep doing. You don't want to do them. How can I ever get free from this? You feel confined by sin. Some of you feel like you have this growing tumor of sin, which is sapping away energy from the pursuit of life-giving worship. It just is killing you by degrees. It's a wasting disease. Others, if you feel like, I'm just caught up in a storm, I cannot figure out how, to, how I'm going to survive this stuff going on around me. And probably if we talked in a very raw, honest way about sin and effects, its effects on us, our stories would all be very different. But what I want us to see is that in each of these stanzas, the psalmist, although the circumstances are different, and although the effects of the sin is different, the response is the same. The response is to cry out to the Lord in your distress. And then it says, and he delivered them from their distress. And then it says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. So your story this morning may be different from the person sitting next to you. But what the Bible calls you to do in response to the sin in your life is to cry out to the Lord in your distress. Cry out to him. Or maybe this morning you have been delivered. Your testimony is one that God has brought you out. And then very plainly, what Psalm 107 calls you to do is give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love, for the wondrous things he's done for you. Give praise to him for it. But one of the things I do find, and I've said this in all of our previous studies of Psalm 107, one of the things that is so enormously hopeful to me about this psalm and what it says about our God is that the people who find themselves in these places, lost, diseased, in prison, in a storm, Psalm 107 doesn't pull any punches. It says that they find themselves there because of their sin. They blew it, guys. They messed up royally. They broke God's laws. They spurned His counsels, His counsel. They they zigged when God told them, you definitely should zag. And now they're in trouble. And what, are they gonna, what is God going to do? And what Psalm 107, and I've said this in our previous times together, reassures us of is that if you have absolutely made a shipwreck of your life through disobedience, through spurning of God's counsel, if this morning you are addicted, broken, lost in circumstances that... You had no idea you would end up here when you disobeyed God. I want you to know that your disobedience, your sin, does not disqualify you from God's rescue. God is not saying to you, I'm no longer for you. He's not saying you made your bed, now lie in it. He's saying, cry to me in your distress. Even though your distress is of your own making and against my counsel, 
Cry out to me in your distress and I will deliver you. The broken and contrite heart I will not despise. It's an amazing God. It's a God of grace and it's a celebration of Him. He is good even though we're not. So we come to our stanza this morning. And it reads like this. I'm reading uh, verses 17 through 22. This is the third stanza depicting sin and its effects. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He sent out His word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His deeds in songs of joy. Here, sin is depicted as a disease of the soul. It's a wasting disease. It's a disease that saps a person of energy, of pleasure. It, it, it brings about suffering, and it grows in a person. It's a wasting disease. And it's also a hereditary disease. In the midweek email this week, I wrote an open letter to my kids apologizing for, to them uh, because Sarah and I decided to continue with our plans to conceive them, even though we knew there was a 100% chance that they would develop a terminal illness that would kill them. We did that to them. And this disease is woven right into the fabric of my family's DNA because we descend from that old rascal Adam. <laughs> and you do too. Guys, my family has a horrible illness. It's hereditary. It's passed on from generation to generation. And the symptoms of this disease are terrible. This disease manifests in these sinful cravings that we act upon, self-serving things that we do. We injure ourselves and others. And this disease grows and flourishes until it will eventually take our life. The wages of sin is death. And if my kids don't do anything about this disease of the soul, it will kill them. But thankfully, there is a cure, isn't there? Psalm 107 makes it plain. Cry out to me in your distress. I will save you. Romans 10.9 says, If anyone calls on the name of the Lord, he will be, they will be saved. Guys, there is a cure for this disease of the soul. Jesus, again, voluntarily took our disease onto himself and suffered its consequences so that we could be freed from its dread grip. Our sin nature is the disease. The gospel is the only cure. But I will say this about this depiction of sin. Uh, this depiction of sin as a disease is not only different from the other three 
depictions of sin in Psalm 107, it hits a little closer to home, doesn't it? I have never been lost in a desert to the point where I thought I was going to die because I didn't have water. I've seen it in the movies, but that's not, not something I've ever experienced personally. I know in a group this size, there probably are some who have been arrested and put in a prison before. But that's not something I've ever experienced, and probably, in all probability, the majority of us have never been put in handcuffs and put in a jail cell. I have no plans to venture out on the open sea in a sailboat, much less in the middle of a storm, anytime soon. These are all much more hypothetical scenarios to me. I don't spend a lot of time worrying about being put in jail or getting lost in a desert or being in a storm on the open sea. But do you know what I do spend some time pretty regularly worrying about? Getting sick. I do. I'm always viewing my body with some degree of suspicion. (laughs) Every little ache and pain, you go, oh, well, this is probably the beginning of the end. Maybe that's just me, but I'm seeing a lot of people nodding their heads. You agree? Many of us, even if you have never experienced in your own body personally a disease that is this kind of, the sort of wasting disease being described here that's growing and flourishing in your physical person and it's robbing you of energy. It's making you no longer want the things that would normally keep you alive like food. And you're being, you don't feel pleasure anymore, you're feeling a lot of pain. If you have never even experienced that personally, you've seen it. You've seen it. Someone you love, someone you have prayed for, you've seen this thing and you probably fear it. And so this this stanza hits a little closer to home than the other ones I find. And I think what this is um, challenging us with in this stanza, in the first stanza, when it talked about the city to dwell in, that we're to be looking for. We're lost in this desert. We can't find our way to a city to dwell in. We made the point that morning that this was not a literal city being described. It was a home for your soul. And then last week when it says that God comes in and breaks the bonds apart and sets us free, we were talking about how God, through the gospel, sets us free from sin. It was not literally, God does not promise to bust us out of the clink if we get in jail. No, but he will set you free in prison. And now when we come to this depiction of sin as a disease, it's depicting, again, a disease of the soul, not necessarily healing from a literal physical disease. I'm not at all negating the miraculous healing that we see depicted in the Bible, and maybe you Maybe that's part of your testimony as well. I believe God does heal people from diseases. That's That's not a fake thing. That's real. I believe that. And there are other passages in the Bible that speak to that on point. But what I want us to see here is that what's being described in this portion of Psalm 107 is not describing 
a literal physical illness. It's using physical illness to illustrate a spiritual disease of the soul. But what I find is that what, oh, I, don't, I can't even say this is true for you, but it's true maybe for me at times. Tell, let me ask you this question. You don't need to answer out loud. Just in the quiet places of your heart, let it be a rhetorical question. Which would you fear more? The flourishing of cancer in your body or the flourishing of a sin in your inner world? Which causes you the greatest gut check kind of fear, thought? Disease or sin? I'm reminded of what we're told in the Bible, don't fear him who can destroy your body, but fear him who destroys body and soul in hell. That was a different scenario entirely. It's saying don't fear human persecutors of Christians. The worst they can do is affect your body. But fear him who destroys body and soul in hell. There is something greater and higher to worry about than physical preservation. I'm reminded also of the healing of the invalid. Do you remember this guy? We, we studied this a couple of years ago. You might remember in John chapter 5, Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda. There's all kinds of sick people there. And he heals just one of them, a man who was an invalid. And then later he catches up with that man at the, at the temple because all he had done at, to this point was heal him of a physical illness, but he wasn't done with this man. He finds him and tells him, sin no more lest something worse befall you. What is worse than being an invalid for 30 plus years? What's worse than the worst kind of physical ailment? Guys, there is something worse than the flourishing in our bodies of a disease. And it's a flourishing in our spirit of sin. This is worse. This should make us be filled with more dread than the first thought, even. Or think of the healing of the paralytic. Do you remember this scene in Luke chapter 5? Jesus is teaching in a house, and the place is so packed that these guys who are bringing their paralyzed friend to Jesus to be healed can't even get close to Jesus. They can't get him in the door. So they do an amazing thing. How, How many of us want friends like this? They take a paralyzed guy up on the roof of this building. They tear apart the roof so that there's an opening big enough, this poor homeowner. (laughs) I don't know what he was thinking. He's like, ah, what's going on up there? But they tear the roof apart, the tiles, and then they lower the paralyzed man down to Jesus. So this paralyzed man lowers down to Jesus. What an amazing scene. And the guys are like, they're probably fist bumping on the roof. We did it. We got him in front of Jesus. And then Jesus opens his mouth. And do you know what he says? The very first thing he says to that man. Well, he says he does it in response to the faith of his friends. But he says, your sins are forgiven. Huh. I wonder if his friends were like, well, that's. That's great and all, Jesus. <laughs> We're glad you forgave his sins. Uh, but can you do something about the paralysis? It says there in verse 20, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He does heal the man physically, but what we need to see in this verse, these verses is that the physical healing served to illustrate the greater need of this man. Which, is, which will the man celebrate 10,000 years from now in glory? His healing of paralysis or his healing or his forgiveness of sins? In fact, I would put it to you even this way. The best thing that ever happened to that man was being paralyzed because it brought him to Jesus. It brought him to the place where his sins were forgiven. I used to um, know a man. His name was Butch, Butch Ward. Butch Ward was dying of cancer. His sister came to me and asked me to go to him. I went And uh, we spent some time together every week between in the last year of his life. And in one of those times together, uh, as we were talking, we were actually talking about John chapter 9, another passage of Scripture where, you remember the scene there, Jesus and his disciples are outside of the temple and his disciples see a man who had been born blind. And they say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither. It's so that the glory of God can be shown in this man that he was born blind. And we were talking about that verse. I don't even know that passage. I don't even know how we got there. But Butch Ward started crying. And he said that one of the, the greatest gift God had ever given to him was cancer. I was blown away. I said, Butch, what do you mean? He said, I could have died in a car accident or a heart attack. I could have died separated from God. But God allowed me to be able to see that I was approaching the end of my life. He brought about the end of my life in a way where I could see it coming and I could see that I needed to get right with God. It wasn't sudden and unexpected. That's a gift. What Butch very clearly saw was that the thing that was worse was the flourishing of sin in his heart, not the flourishing of cancer in his body. Now, for all that, we do see other examples in the Bible of people who get this flipped upside down. Do you remember the the, uh, man on... Jesus was crucified between two thieves... And one of the thieves railed against Jesus, saying, if you are who you say you are, get us all down off of here. (laughs) That man viewed Jesus as useful, not precious in himself. He saw the the greatest thing that Jesus could do for him was give him more time on planet Earth. Relieve me of this discomfort. Relieve me of the thing that's killing me. He, did not, he was not worried about his own sin, though, as far as the Bible records for us. The other thief, though, said of Jesus, 
leave him alone. This man's innocent. He's not even guilty of the crime he's dying for. Of those two thieves, Jesus only answered the one, and that was that, that other one. He said, truly, I say to you today, you're going to be with me in paradise. And that's, uh, and that's the wonderful thing. Jesus was gracious and merciful to that man. Now, one of the things I think we should see here is this. We all have a diseased soul. It's a hereditary illness. I've sinned plenty in my life, but even if I had lived a very relatively pure sort of life, the sin of Adam was passed on to me by Barry and Janet Tate. They're the worst. (laughs) They gave me this. I'm a sinner. I'm totally depraved, which means not I'm as bad as I possibly could be, but that every part of me is polluted with sin. I use this analogy a lot. It's the best way I have to illustrate it. But some of you guys are objectively better than other people, morally speaking. I think sins can be quantified. I think some sins are more grave and serious than others. All sin is serious, don't get me wrong. But all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but some of you have not sinned as egregiously as others. You need to know God does not grade on a scale. And the illustration I always use is the floor of a dumpster might be objectively dirtier than the seat of a toilet, but you're not eating off of either. God's standard for entry into heaven is not a relative morality. It is perfect righteousness. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of you. And the wages of sin is death, says Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God... The free gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God doesn't stand there wanting to give you what you have coming to you. He wants to give you a gift. He's gracious. But the first thing you have to do is acknowledge to God, I have a diseased soul. I'm wrong of heart. Uh, You you might remember the figure in the Old Testament, King David. Um, Of all the people in the Bible, the figure that is mentioned most by name, even more than Jesus, is David. David, The Bible spends a lot of time talking about King David. Um, uh, A couple years ago, we spent some time studying the life of David. But one of those really famous, maybe infamous is a better word, chapters in David's life is the time when he really blew it big time. He sinned egregiously. He uh, had a, a, an affair with a married woman. And to make it even worse, he killed that woman's husband when she became pregnant with his child. Big cover-up. Sin begets sin. It goes deeper and worse David not only did this horrible thing to Bathsheba, but then he murdered her husband to cover the whole thing up. 
Guys, this is horribly wrong. David has wandered way off. He's hurt other people. He really did a terrible thing to Bathsheba, murdered her husband. He is, by anyone's definition, a bad man. And then he spends two psalms that we know of in the Bible describing the aftermath of that spiritually. In Psalm 32, he says this. This is after this whole incident and everything that went down. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then catch this. Here he's describing a disease of his soul. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David was way off course. He was lost, couldn't figure out a way to get home. His diseased soul was wasting away. And in that desperate place, a place of his own making, he cried out to the Lord in his distress. And the Lord dealt graciously with him. Psalm 51, he writes very similarly. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit." These are two pictures of a man who is in an absolute pickle of his own making. He sinned. He spurned the counsel of God. He disobeyed the word of God. He's lost. His soul is diseased. And in desperation, he cries out to God in his distress, and he's delivered. Uh, This is very different from the way I think our culture tends to view Christians. Uh, With Sarah gone in California, and most of my kids, the only one over there at my house is me and Bowdoin, and uh, so I've been coming home to an empty house a lot, and I've been trying to tackle some some to-do list items, but when I'm not doing that, I'm watching Law & Order. I've been binge-watching Law & Order. I've been hanging out with Jack McCoy and the whole crew. And what's amazing to me watching all these episodes of Law and Order is how often they depict Christians. Uh, I don't know if Dick Wolf, the executive producer of Law and Order, has a Christian background or has a bone to pick with Christians. I don't know what's going on. But a lot of these episodes, there's some, uh, they're interacting with the church in some way. And usually, and it really gets under my skin, 
Christians are depicted as these self-righteous, you know, uptight, judgy human beings. A lot of the times they're trying to cover up their murder because, murdering somebody because then the people in the church would have known what I was really like. What we, but those of us who are true believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, what we've come to understand, guys, is not that Christians are like the Michael Jordans of good living. We're not the best. We're sincere. We're trying. We're more and more trying to become like the God who has saved us. There should be some evidence of transformation in our lives, a growing desire for righteousness. But guys, I know and you know that I'm not good. I know you're not good. All of us have sinned. What defines us as a community is not that we're better than those people out there, but that we've been delivered. We cried to the Lord in our distress. Our soul was diseased. And God sent his word and made us whole. That's our testimony. I don't think Dick Wolf gets that. I think he views us as a community of do-gooders and hypocrites. But I do think it's something that we celebrate here together in our times. Not that we're good, but we worship a God who is great. He is wonderful. And we are trying in all sincerity to become like Him more and more. But we extend grace to one another, don't we? We're quick to forgive because, again, we're becoming what we worship. What we revere, in the end, we will resemble and so what we spend a lot of our time together is, is helping one another see Jesus more clearly because that's who we're trying to be. Guys, I'm doing pretty good for not having written a sermon here. Because <laughs> I might never write another sermon again. This is fantastic. No, we'll, we won't do that. I do want to end with one kind of helpful diagnostic, though, here. Um, it says here, and it's very interesting to me, that they loathe, the person who had a diseased soul loathed any kind of food. That's interesting to me in light of what we're talking about. The, the psalmist is using disease as a, a representative analogy for a disease of the soul. So sometimes a person with a physical wasting disease will experience a loss of appetite. They don't want to eat anymore. Eating is what keeps us going. It's what causes our bodies to thrive. It fuels our activity. Without eating, the, the, the process of wasting away is accelerated without food for the body. And it says that this person who had a... a uh, a, a disease of the soul loathed any kind of food. And it says that when they cried to the Lord in their distress, and He answered them, He delivered them, He did that by sending them what? Do you guys see it there in your text? What did He send them? His Word. 
That's interesting. The Bible often compares God's Word, the Bible, to food. Psalm 119 says this, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Jeremiah 3.15, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. They're going to feed you on knowledge and understanding. 1 Peter 2.2 calls us to long for the pure milk of the word so that by it we may grow in respect to salvation. Hebrews 5 says that just as a baby graduates from breast milk to solid food, so too should a believer graduate from the basic elementary truths of the gospel to a deeper exploration of the things of God through his word. When he was being tempted by Satan in the desert, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 8.3 saying, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So again, again and again and again, the God in his word compares the Bible, his words, to food. What you need for your soul to flourish is the word of God. Human beings experience all different kinds of things that we hunger for. And for every appetite you have, there is a variety of foods. You can feed your desire to belong with junk food. That's an appetite most human beings have. They want to have a sense of community and belonging, but a lot of people feed that appetite with absolute garbage. Most of you were, have sexual longings. How will we feed that appetite God has given us? Not all, not all foods are equal in benefit. In fact, a steady diet of some will make us really sick. You have all kinds of appetites. And maybe the greatest appetite or longing of the human soul is an appetite for God. And we try to feed that in all different kinds of ways. But a steady diet of some things is going to make you sick. Others leave you craving and unsatisfied no matter how much you eat. But as Psalm 34.8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just as our physical bodies require good, nutritious food to function in an optimal way, so too does the church, the body of Christ. We need God's word in order for there to be function and power and a flourishing in our souls. And this brings us, quite naturally, to the communion table. We're going to finish out our time this morning um, by taking communion together. The communion table, it's a, in some ways, it's, it's a strange thing that we're doing. I've made the observation before that the Lord's Supper has been observed by Christians all over the world and all down through the centuries since the very beginning, the inception of the church. In fact, Jesus instituted what we're about to do on the night he was betrayed and handed over. But it is one of those things that we do as Christians, which must seem strange to the uninitiated. If you are somebody completely new to Christianity never heard about this religion or what we do or any of it, I think any explanation of what we're about to do would have to land on your ears in kind of a strange, funny way. 
I mean, we have these little pieces of bread, which we say represents the broken body of Jesus. And we have these little cups with grape juice, which we say are symbolic of his blood. And what do we do with the body and the blood of our God? Well, of course, we eat it and drink it. And to an outsider, that would seem a little strange. It's like we're play-acting at cannibalism or something. And in fact, during the reign of Roman Emperor Octavius in the second century AD, that's exactly what many people believed, except minus the make-believe part. One of the charges that people brought against Christianity, which was a relatively new religion at that time, was that Christians were actually cannibals, and we had this shadowy rite that we practiced when we got together where we engaged in some sort of ritual cannibalism, eating bodies and drinking blood. They'd heard shadowy reports of this mysterious holy rite, and their imaginations went wild. According to the writings of at least one Roman official at that time, it was apparently believed by the Romans that babies were ritually sacrificed in this ritual. You can see how someone who had just a passing encounter with Christianity might come away with some very strange ideas. One of my favorite hymns um, is, There is a fountain filled with blood. There is a fountain filled with blood. How strange a lyric is that? The song describes sinners bathing themselves in the blood of somebody who's been murdered on their behalf. How strangely must all of that fall on the ears of people who are not familiar with the great story of God's redemptive plan. But really, even for those who are familiar with the story of how Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross in the place of sinners... Those words might even strike us as kind of graphic and jarring. Eating flesh, drinking blood, evil people washing themselves in the blood of an innocent man. These images seem more like the plot elements of a horror film than a Christian worship service. So why in the world... Do we use such graphic, jarring, and some might even say disturbing and alienating imagery? Well, one reason is because Jesus himself spoke in this way, and he was certainly aware of how it sounded. You might remember in John 6, Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. After saying this, by the way, a whole crowd walked away from him offended. They wanted nothing more to do with a man who would talk like this. It was jarring, it was unacceptable, it was offensive, and they walked away. So why did he say it? Why must we eat him? This brings us to what the Bible calls the great I am statements in the Bible. Jesus had this way of talking. His teaching always terminated on himself. Unlike prophets 
who pointed away from themselves to go towards God, Jesus pointed towards himself as God. He said things like, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the son of God. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the living water. I am, I am, I am, I am these things. I don't know the way. I am the way. I don't have a light. I am the light. I don't come bringing bread. I am bread. You don't need something from me. You need me. So that's why Jesus spoke in this way. So why must we eat Jesus? Because he's who you need, not something that he has in his hands. You need him. Jesus did not come to give us something that we need. He came to be what we need. You have a diseased soul this morning. And Christianity is not about getting something from Jesus, it's about getting Him. He is not useful to us. He is precious. And what we need is not something He has in His power to bestow. We need Him. And so Jesus says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, unless you recognize it's me you need, you remain in your sins. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Go in peace to serve the Lord.